Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, Richard and I had the pleasure of interviewing Father Sergius Halverson, Assistant Professor of Homiletics and Rhetoric at St. Vladimir's Seminary in Crestwood, New York. In his work in the field of homiletics, Father Sergius insists that his students strive to be faithful to the narrative in order that they, as he explains, might upset the equilibrium of their addressees. In this way, those who hear the sermon come face to face with the biblical story. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to the 17th episode of the Bible as Literature podcast. And today has been... I don't know, a trip down memory lane. Exactly. We are back at St. Vladimir's Seminary visiting friends and colleagues from the good old days, and they really were the good old days. And it's an honor to be here today with Reverend Dr. Sergius Halverson. Father Sergius was a student ahead of Richard and I at St. Vladimir's, someone that we looked up to, someone who was there to greet me when I rolled up to campus in my car packed with all kinds of supplies for my loving parents. It was Father Sergius who helped me get settled in and was very much a part of my life as a student at St. Vladimir's. Yeah. Father Sergius, why don't I let you introduce yourself? Give us your full title, a full background. Sure. Well, I'm the Assistant Professor of Homiletics and Rhetoric at St. Vladimir's Seminary. I've just finished my third year here. And in addition to teaching homiletics and rhetoric, I also teach the Christian education course on a regular basis. And next year, I'm very excited, looking forward to teaching a course in faith and science. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, interesting topic, yeah. Yeah, so that's, those are the courses that I teach, and then I'm also the director of the Doctor of Ministry program. We are just starting that program. It's a hybrid distance learning program. So basically, anyone who is a, a minister, obviously priests, but even lay people who are working in ministry are, are able to do this as long as they have the ability to get online and use online tools, but then are able to come on campus for one-week intensive. So we're very excited. We're starting that program this summer. So that's what I do here at St. Vladimir. Great. Great. So can you tell us more about how you teach Scripture, how you view Scripture when you're teaching? My core area, my real passion is preaching. So primarily I'm teaching men who are training to serve as priests and also lay people who are training to serve as ministers, teaching them how to preach the gospel. In that process, I start my very kind of the heart of what I do and how I teach comes from the Gospel of St. Matthew, where Jesus has been baptized and he's gone out and he then takes over the preaching that John the Baptist started. And the evangelist tells us, and he began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what I tell my students over and over again is this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, really is the fundamental message of scripture and the fundamental message of the gospel. And so everything that we do in homiletics class revolves around that basic shape. So in terms of the Bible as literature, my work is very intimately and intensely connected to that Mm -hmm. because one of the ways that I approach it, not so much explicitly as literature, but what I'm really focusing on is plot. Oh. Mm. So rather, not, not so much Bible as literature, but gospel as plot that there is fundamentally this call to repentance, this word that reveals to us how we are failing to obey the commandments of God, and then how there's also a word there that somehow lifts us towards obedience, that inspires us to move in that direction. So I would say, absolutely, yes. <laughs> my, my work is very much related to Bible as literature. When you talk about Bible as plot, can you say a little bit more about that? The basic structure of the Gospels is a narrative. 
it's a story. It begins, it takes you through step by step. Things happen. You have interactions between, mm. between figures. You have Jesus teaching. You have people responding. You have tension that builds. You have a response to that. And so that's what I mean by plot. It has to do with the way that a story captures the imagination of hearers mm-hmm. And then how that narrative, as it's creating images in the mind of the hearer, because that's what a good story does. It's not just a boring list of technical abstract terms. You're following it. You're hearing it. You're listening to it. Mm -hmm. And it leads you through a particular sequence Mm -hmm. of events. And through that, you learn something or you have an opportunity to learn something. Or perhaps to put it differently, you have an opportunity to confront something or encounter something, perhaps in a different way than you have before, or maybe in, in a way that you had previously. But it's an opportunity to have a particular kind of encounter. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk about plot, what I'm really talking about is a sequence of images, a sequence of events that create images in the mind of the hearer that allow the hearer to encounter something. So how, Father Sergius, we've talked about this before, and it's it's very interesting in your doctoral studies, how does the sermon, or how should the sermon submit to that plot? How does the sermon serve that plot when the preacher is trying to convey the story? What I teach my students, and what I believe very strongly, is that if you're preaching the gospel, you're going to have those two basic elements. You're going to have that call to repentance and then repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then some word of hope, some word of inspiration, which very much follows the same plot line as you know, the gospel. I mean, even what St. Paul preaches, there's that idea of a call to repentance and then the word that you don't do this on your own. It's not like you're left for some bizarre you know, white-knuckle spirituality where you just have to force yourself to obey, but rather you realize that you have fallen into sin, that you are disobedient, but then that this merciful God is actually offering you strength so that you can obey and so that you can fulfill his commandments and love the neighbor, specifically when the neighbor is unlovable. So when when you get students and you present them with this idea of plot, that the sermon is serving the plot, is this something surprising to them or shocking to them or is it completely obvious to them? Or well, how, how, do they rea- how do they react to that? It's a great question. On one level, there's a substantial amount of unlearning that has to happen uh, like for what, most students. Yeah. Because, because a lot of times when people think of theology, they think of a very abstract philosophical discourse that relies on particular taxonomies and you know this category of virtues or this category of vices or you know some sort of abstract theological definition of the persons of the Trinity or something like that. Now, obviously there's a place for that, but it really is totally almost impossible to preach in that language. Why is that? Because only somebody who's really been highly trained and who really has a passionate desire to understand that kind of discourse is even going to follow you at all. That's why a very dense technical theological book is something that people don't just pick up right out of the blue and read through it. It's because it's very dense. It's a kind of discourse that's not, in a sense, it's not natural to the way people talk and communicate with one another. It's not to say that I try to tell them that that's wrong or Mm -hmm. try to get them to unlearn it, but I simply say, now be aware that this kind of discourse has its place, but when you're preaching, it's almost always going to fail. Interesting. Then, the other thing, too, is I try to remind them that fundamentally, just about every human being is born with a love of story, with a love of narrative. I remind them, for example, if you have children or if you can remember being a child, how you want to hear the same story over and over and over again. And or, don't you know, skip a single page. Exactly. And so it's not something that people have to think much about, but it's getting them to have a critical appreciation for the kind of discourse 
that they're using. That discourse is a technical kind of rhetorical yeah, can term. You, yeah, can you, be, can you be a little more specific about what you mean by the discourse that they're using, the discourse that, they're, that they sure. need to shift to and that sure. sort of thing? It, it would simply have to do with the mode, the language, the syntax, the diction that they're using to convey a particular set of ideas. So mm-hmm. for an example, if you say something like the United States of America, that's a totally abstract term. If somebody was just off the street and had never heard of, of the United States of America, you say that to them, they, they hear, you know, the United States of America. They hear five words, but what is that? That would be abstract discourse, and there's tons of it around. It's, it's a very useful tool. We, we don't have to tell the story of the United States of America every time we refer to it. But then the other form, a narrative discourse, would be if I told you about these people who are living on this continent and they were under this particular king and there was this kind of abuse of power and you see, so that would be narrative discourse. So usually in my classes, my primary distinction would be between abstract discourse and narrative discourse. Mm-hmm. And really encouraging the students to embrace narrative discourse in well, their preaching. Abstract discourse really is very dangerous actually because it assumes a narrative, not necessarily the narrative, sure. but, but a narrative. Yeah. And when you say the United States of America, for a Native American, it has one narrative value. Right. And for, you know, someone who can trace their lineage back to the Mayflower, it has another narrative or to value. Or Af- to an Afghan, it might have another right. meaning. Again, one has to be nuanced in this. And I'm in no way saying that abstract discourse is, like, wrong or that we can never use it. Because if we were without narrative discourse... We wouldn't be able to design and implement this machine that we're using to record this podcast. We need brief terms that encompass big ideas mm-hmm. um, so that we can just talk about it to say, I don't know, are we connected to the router? Mm-hmm. That's abstract discourse. It's, it's kind of code language that we use for larger ideas. But I strongly believe that when we're dealing with scripture and when we're dealing with Christian faith, the more narrative we can be, the better. Mm-hmm. Because the difference is, is that when you're dealing with abstract discourse, it tends to depersonify the discussion. Mm-hmm. It's almost mm-hmm. like one of the dangers of abstract discourse would be like that language. They say, oh, there was a bombing conducted by such and such military and there was collateral damage, mm-hmm. right. which is a very abstract, depersonalized way to say innocent people suffered and died. Whereas if you give a narrative and you say bombs were dropped and children were there and they were wounded and then they died, weeping in the arms of their uncle... That's a much more immediate narrative. That brings home the reality. And so in terms of our role as Christians, as believers, as leaders, priests, Mm -hmm. whomever we might be, the task, I believe, of preaching the gospel is to have a real, authentic, personal encounter with the other, with the neighbor. And the more that we can help people understand Scripture in that way, in that concrete sense, that it really leads you to regard your neighbor in a certain way, a real person, yeah, rather sure. than just, oh, well, let's decode scripture and let's break it down into its abstract theological tenets. Sure, right. That oh, can be very oh, yeah. dicey. When I'm hearing you talk about the narrative, I want to say that it's another way of saying, look at the actual data. The image forming in my mind is of a preacher who's trying to speak, but every time he wants to speak a word has to go back to the narrative to kind of not navigate but find his way the way the narrative wants to point him. I think it's a very interesting way of trying to describe the the concept of submission to the text, you know, and actually letting the text speak through the sermon. Sure. Now, one of the things that, as you know very well, Dr. Benton, you being a scholar of language, know this incredibly well, is that, you know, these, these are ancient texts that have been translated. And even in the best of translations, 
sometimes it's difficult for contemporary 21st century people to give it a hearing because, again, the narrative was constructed a certain way, whether it was originally composed, written in Hebrew and then translated or whether it was Greek or whatever. And so an additional task of the preacher is to read that text and to really, to the best of his or her ability, encounter that narrative. What, mm -hmm. what is the text saying? What kind of a journey is the text taking me on? And then, rather than just reporting to the hearer, where did it take me? Going back and saying, now, if I'm speaking to a dozen people, recognizing that maybe I have someone who's five years old and another person who's 85 years old, how can I retell, not to say you're always paraphrasing scripture, but how can I somehow tell this story to invite those hearers to go on that same kind of a journey that scripture is taking me on? That's the key word, right? It's an invitation. Yes. How do you, and this is what I struggle with as a preacher, how do you instill the love of the Bible in the gathered community. And it's it's hard because you have so many opponents Absolutely. In, in our current cultural historical setting. Absolutely. So many very interesting opponents that pull them in different directions. But how do you get them to want to come next week to hear the gospel, to want to go home and read the Psalter with their children? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big question. Right. Well, it's huge. There's, so there's, I, I hear you talking I about... I come back to that question, but... No. Okay. Yeah, go please. Ahead, go yeah. Ahead, yeah. Yeah. I, no, I hear you talking about two different layers here, too, and I think this relates because it sounds like when you're teaching aspiring preachers, you're talking about two levels of narrative and two levels of rhetoric. One is the one that we read in the Bible. Right. The narrative, what's the story in this chunk of John that we're reading today? Right. What's going on? Who are the characters? Who, what, when, where, why, how? You know, the basic understanding of the plot and being able to see that and encountering that. Right. And then reading it, interpreting it, internalizing it. But then there's the next level of narrative and rhetoric as I preach this to the people. Can you talk about how these interact and going back to what Father Mark was saying, how does this relate to how do you draw in the audience, the, the congregation into both layers of the story? In class, what I, what I ask them, I say, okay, how is the text calling you to repentance? Quite simply, you read this story, let's say it's the parable, and I, I usually refer to it as the, par the parable of the merciful father and the two stupid boys. How is this story calling you to repentance? And I always remind them to read to the end. Don't just stop when the younger one comes back, but keep going all the way to the end, uh, which is, you know, the, even the lectionary takes us there. You know, so you're left with that hard, yeah. that hard ending of that older brother saying, well, this, you know, this younger brother of mine is a jerk. Why should I be happy that he came back? And the father says, you know, you were always with me, and, and what's mine is yours. You should therefore rejoice. Well, it doesn't have a happy ending. By definition, from a literary perspective, a parable is not designed to have a happy ending. It's designed to put you in a bind, to uh. make the hearer go, huh? Wait a minute, what am I going to do? So the first question is, how is this text calling you as the preacher to repentance? And what is it calling to you to repent from? And then the question is, then how is this text also giving you a word of hope? How is it not just leaving you in exile? In the, in the context of the Orthodox Church, we're given a lectionary text, and the, what's read in the, in the liturgy doesn't always take us to that point of hope. Sometimes it's designed just to leave us in that difficult situation. So then the question that I ask of the preachers say, okay, now in that text, is there a word of hope? Is there something that inspires you to somehow move away from the sin that has you know, been destroying your life and move towards a life of mercy and love and compassion in obedience to God, which means to live in the kingdom? So if you're living in the kingdom, you're obedient to the king. Now, sometimes the preacher has, faces the task that they, they don't find it in that lectionary text, and so they have to look for it somewhere else. So that's why the preacher must, absolutely must, have a decent command of Scripture, to be fluent in the imagery, to be fluent in the narrative of Scripture, so they can draw from other texts. There's nothing that says, just because you're given one lectionary text, 
means you can only talk about that text, right? So that would be the first, like you're talking about, Dr. Benton, the first layer of, of kind of narrative analysis. And then the second one would be to say, all right, this is how the text is calling me to repent. This is how the text is also giving me a word of hope. Now, in what way do I and do, do the people I'm called to preach, people I'm called to serve, how are they also suffering in the same way? How are they also disobeying in the same way? And how is this also a good word for them? And so those would be, if I understood your question, those would be the two, kind of the two levels. So, you know, good preaching will always draw the hearer into the text. Uh, sometimes I say to my students, put them in the shoes of the person who is doing, who is actually sinning in the gospel, right? You know, if you're, if you're the older brother, then the preacher needs to somehow invite the hearer to say, gosh, I'm doing the same thing, uh, and, and, and finding that, but then also moving in a different direction. The so, word we've used, just if I may interrupt, sure. Father, is channeling. In the past, when we've talked about this, trying to channel the narrative so channel. that the story isn't something in a Petri dish that you analyze. Exactly. The story exactly. is a story that doesn't just grab you, but confronts you. Exactly, exactly. And then the next, the next layer of the narrative would be to help to, to provide additional imagery, as, as needed, uh, additional narrative, if you will, of contemporary events. Because probably very few people in the community actually have had you know, a younger brother who somehow got half of his inheritance and went, wasted it all. But there are many ways that perhaps on, I don't know, let's say on, on Pascha night, when you hear the Paschal Sermon of John Chrysostom and you look around and you say, well, those losers, they just came to this service for the first time, and I've been here for all of Great Lent. <laughs> so, you know, giving narrative, helping the people to see how, in fact, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I do exactly the same thing as that, as that older brother. But then also, additionally, giving them a word of hope. And so, this getting back to what you said earlier, Father Mark, about how do we encourage people to engage the Bible and engage that narrative uh, it's what I call the so what factor. Mm-hmm. Good preaching will always answer that because my, my, my hypothesis or my, my theory is that deep down, even subconsciously, everyone is asking the question of every preacher or every teacher, so what? Mm-hmm. You say all this, blah, 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 but so what? And so the more that we can help people to see how this narrative that was written 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, however many years, to show them that what's going on there the, the narrative dynamic, what, what, what the word of Scripture is saying to us uh, is immediate and relevant and affects us right now. That is really the only effective way to engage anyone so that they'll say, hey, Scripture is important. I want to know more. Yeah. Because it, it really is um, it's invitation. Yes. You can't force someone to eat. Right. Yes, you can. You can. You can only. All you can do is make them a nutritious meal uh, and prepare it in a way that's appetizing to them, and then you invite them to eat. And they might be a little bit dubious at first, but they have a small bite. And they're like, "Wow, this is really good!" Right? And they and then they dig in. So it's all about that idea of invitation and uh, and encouragement. I think always when we have these conversations, there's always a cultural tension. Mm, sure. Well, you know, I mean, we are we're American clergy and teachers, so we're dealing with the American cultural setting and. Uh, you know, in our last episode, we talked about the question of honor and shame. Right. Richard has spoken about harlotry and loyalty. I mean, these are themes. I mean, there is shame. The American culture deals with shame and honor in its own way. But it's so difficult sometimes because the way in which Scripture uses shame, for example, on the surface pushes all the wrong buttons for an American audience. And so, you know, that confrontation with the story. Yes can become very explosive 
and controversial yes. in an American setting. You know, you want to be faithful to what the story is saying. You know, I mean, it's interesting that dance that a preacher has to do because there has to be tension. But, you, you know, I mean, right. so how, how do you handle that? And how, what do you tell your students? Well, I guess the first thing would be to say to embrace it because no plot is worth listening to unless there's a tension. Of course, yeah. There's, there's always some tension there. Yes. There's always going to be something that, that is somehow uncomfortable. Uh, Eugene Lowry, who wrote a wonderful book called The Homiletical Plot, he wrote it, what, like, uh, almost 40 years ago. It's a classic in, in homiletical literature. Anyway, it's called The Homiletical Plot. He, he says one of the things that an effective preacher will do is to upset the equilibrium. And... Some of my students will say, well, what, you, you want us to bring them down? You know, you want, us, you want us to make the people feel bad? No, no, that's not the point at all. Rather, the point is to, to help the people recognize one of the myriad ways that they're already feeling bad, <laughs> that they're yeah. already suffering. It's yeah. apocalyptic in that sense. Sure. You're uncovering what's, what's, exactly. what's actually there. Right. Or you're, you're shining the light of the gospel on a dark corner of the human soul. Hmm. Well, what I used to say when I was teaching, for example, comparative religion, and we'd be reading original texts, I would say, lean into the pain. Yeah, After I said this, right. I, this uh. it started appearing all over Facebook when I said this, lean into the pain. I said, but you know, pain can take different forms. Right. What don't you like? What's confusing to you? Right. What offends you? Yes. If you feel any of these things, there's something interesting there to right. look at. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. It's like exactly. a it's like a rabbi told me when I was in college. He told the class, but he said, you know, in order for a plant to grow, it has to actually push against the soil. That's and right. There's pressure and strain, yeah. and it's not a. It's, in other words, growth is not a it's not a pleasant yeah. undertaking. Sure, sure. But finding the point of pain. Right. What is the point of pain? Why? Is it just right. hard? Is it a word you don't understand? Right. Is it a concept that's offensive? It, does the activity offend your sensibilities? Right. What is it? Well, I'll have to use that phrase in my in my class. <laughs> Lean into the pain. Yeah. <laughs> and here I think is, is one of the areas or one of the facets of preaching that really require effective preaching requires a great deal of pastoral maturity because the pain that the preacher leans into in a good way and in an effective way that says, gosh, this part of the text, I always hated it or I've always never understood it or it's always bugged me, you know, well, that's probably the thing you should focus on, right? That That's probably going to be revealed to you. If you really investigate that, it's going to reveal yeah. to you the most important facet of, of this biblical text that you're, you're going to be preaching on. So you're assuming that when the pastor as reader finds a pain point, then that pain point very well may be a pain point for the people he's preaching at, is it? Well, well, first it's just for the, for, for the preacher. Okay, just right. for the preacher, so just, just the just reader. Because, okay. Right, because there's that, one of the other things, and this is a, a, an idea that's brought home very, very effectively by Robin Myers in a book called With Ears to Hear. And he says that, that all persuasion is self-persuasion. Mm-hmm. And if a preacher is going to be effective... The first person who is going to be convicted by the word and and moved by the word is the preacher. So if I'm the preacher and I'm preaching and it's the word that I'm about to preach doesn't excite me and terrify me and move me, then I have no business preaching because odds are it's not going to affect anyone else. So again, the first idea is how does it affect me as the preacher? What's going on with me? But then where that facet of pastoral maturity is so important is to have a really good understanding of the community. Because what the, the pain that I might be able to deal with and grapple with and, uh, and engage in a, in, a, in, a, in a helpful way, in a constructive way, might be 
eight or nine orders of magnitude beyond what one of my members of my community might be able to deal with. In Isaiah, right, this, you know, he, he will not quench the, the smoldering, or he, he will not break the, the, the reed, he will not you know, quench the smoldering wick. And so that idea of, of as you're crafting that word, and yes, as you are making a call to repentance, one always has to be incredibly careful that one doesn't, you know, smash uh, uh, somebody inadvertently and, and lead, them, lead them into greater temptation. Or like Paul says, you know, all things are lawful, but I won't do it because if, if, it, if it scandalizes or offends the least, the, the, the least of these my brethren. Mm. So that, I think, is a place where one has to be really careful. Um, and it's not, it's a very fine line to walk because sometimes pe- preachers will just say, well, you know, it's too controversial or it's too painful, so I'm just going to fluff over it. Well, that's not helpful because then it's not the word of God. Then if there's no call to repentance, then it's, it's not the gospel. On the other hand, if somebody just, you know, leans into the pain, you know, and has no respect for where the community is, people could just be totally blown out of the water and, and, and scandalized, offended, confused, you know, unnecessarily hurt. And so that's really where I think that a great deal of maturity is required. I think where the scandal comes isn't so much in the pain that's in the text, but in what the preacher imposes on the text. That has been my experience. In other words, I, I think the text, and this is my view, Father Sergius, I think the text is very wise about the human condition. And I think if, if we're faithful to the text, I think it smashes people as people need to be smashed, lifts them up, as you say, in the way they need to be lifted up. Is I mean, there are certain sins. This is where I think the smashing is really a fleshly or worldly smashing. There are certain sins that are taboo. Among all Christian groups today, religious groups in general, you take, for example, homosexuality, people will just express all kinds of zeal surrounding these specific sins mm-hmm. and actually alienate the very ones, the, the ones who are vulnerable, right. whom, whom we are called to love and support and, and nurture. But what I find when people lean into that type of pain, it's, it's coming from some other motivation than the text. This is what I'm getting sure, at, sure, you sure. know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Another very important facet, I mean, an absolutely essential facet in preaching is that if one is preaching against the outsider, then one's no longer preaching the gospel. Amen, amen, uh, amen. Because yeah. and the, the, the parable that illustrates that most beautifully is, is uh, Jesus' parable of the publican and the Pharisee. And it is so easy, it is so tempting for preachers to, to call out the outsider, you know, the, the, the reason for my suffering is because of those people over there. You know, those bad X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. It could be those liberals, those conservatives, those... You Other know, denomination, whatever. whatever. Exactly, yeah. you know, those, those this and that. And that's just, that's just blasphemy. Because, because, because then it's not, it, it, it's not repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're not hearing that yourself. You're imposing something on somebody else. Actually, it's yeah. actually repent... No need to repent because the kingdom's already here. Exactly. exactly. We're already in the kingdom. We, and we've got it. And, we've and, got and it. I'm, I'm, move over, Mark and Luke. I'm, I'm actually to the right hand. Yeah, right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. It's, it's, it's true. Listen, Father Sergius, it, it's really, really a joy to be here. Yeah, thank it, you very it much. It reminds me, you know, of the many beautiful long evenings we had yes. sipping coffee and I dare say smoking cigars occasionally, <laughs> uh, having these wonderful conversations. And uh, it's just nice to breathe the air here and uh, to be here with you and looking forward to future conversations. Yeah, it's been my God. pleasure entirely. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.